Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of Developers Eating the World. And it's been a while. Um, part of the reason it's been a while is I am insane and started another podcast at the same time. <laughs> uh, this podcast is called Tech a Sketch. It's YouTube only. And it's me and Ashton, who is a graphic recorder. And we're more focused on the human element of being in tech and career development, which is a little bit in developers eating the world. So podcast is still here. I haven't forgotten about it. Just got a little overwhelmed in, overwhelmed there and exceeded my capabilities for a while. But I won't talk about that anymore. I want to kick off this next episode with another Turing School student. I think, Alyssa, you make the fifth, fourth? Quite a few. Yeah. So you could tell I'm a fan of Turing School. Um, <laughs> Alyssa, Alyssa, why don't you please introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. My name is Alyssa Lundgren, and I graduated from the Turing School of Software and Design uh, Front End Engineering Program in November of 2019. Prior to that, I had worked in all sorts of businesses, uh, breweries, helped um, open a brewery in Boulder and ran that business for five years. Uh, prior to that, I had worked in advertising, and I think that's sort of where I really got interested in technology, sitting on our advertising team selling these big digital projects to clients and sort of being like, well, how are we going to turn that idea into reality, this comp that we have on a piece of paper into an experience for our customers. And so I think that's sort of where um, my interest sparked from. My brother actually also had attended Turing. He did the back end program and encouraged me. Grateful that I did it. That's great. So I want to get into the advertising thing. But before that, um, one of the things that I've said uh, about a lot of the development education out there and some of the gaps that people have when they come out of like university with development skills is they don't get a full stack perspective. And what I've noticed from Turing, it seems like that absolutely is an element there where they they focus on becoming more of a T-shaped individual and getting broader skills besides just front end or back end. Yes, uh, I would say so. You know, as a, as a front end graduate during the fourth module, which is sort of the fourth quarter of the program, we got to dip our toes in not only full stack projects, so working with on a full stack team um, with backend developers, uh, but also working in Node.js and so, so working in some of the front end frameworks build backend products. So um, yeah, got the chance definitely to build that capability as well during the program. Yeah. So you mentioned that advertising was kind of planted the seed for DevOps, which I find really interesting, actually. I've, I've only in the last six months have I drawn this correlation between kind of what happens in marketing, especially digital marketing, and in this case, DevOps, but also in the area of application security. Mm -hmm. What took that seed of being interested in what sounds like delivery and deployment to the technical aspects of it where now it's your job. So when I went to Turing, you know, I didn't really know very much about DevOps. Even uh, upon graduation, I knew that it was, you know, this sort of uh, emergent thing that was that was coming around and people um, had spoken about it a little bit, but even in Turing, we didn't really talk very much about DevOps. 
So I think I kind of got lucky with the job um, that I'm in now. I work as a DevOps engineer at a company called Sentel, and we are we work as contractors on government projects, uh, deploying applications to their operators. So I would say my interest in engineering came from uh, my background in advertising. And I wouldn't necessarily take it as far as my interest in DevOps. I think that my interest in DevOps really came with like, well, here you go. Like, this is the cool opportunity that, that you've stumbled upon. And so, yeah, I think, I think coming from my advertising background and, you know, sitting in, I remember sitting in on client conversations and there wouldn't be a technologist in the room and we'd be selling big digital projects. So I'm like, yeah. there is a gap here. Like how, wait, the people who are actually going to build the thing aren't even here while we sell this pro- this product in. And then, you know, like I said, having this like, you know, design comp that we handed to someone who turned it into an experience. And I just felt like it was like a little bit of a black box there that I didn't understand and was really curious in. And then I also had attended, you know, way back when, when I, I studied business at CU and used to go to a meetup, new Boulder tech night mm-hmm. was the meetup. And it was all of these like super intelligent people talking about um, upcoming and interesting new technologies. And I just would sit there absolutely enthralled and always sort of feel like a little bit out of place. Cause I'm like, Oh, I'm a marketer, you know, and I, I don't know that I could ever like be part of this world. And so I was so grateful for my brother encouraging me to go to Turing and then Turing itself for um, just like opening this world to me that while it was sort of overwhelming upon graduation, you know, just um, so expansive and full of opportunities. So grateful. and Yeah. I've even seen this in my career where tech companies, you have kind of assumption that everybody in the company is technical and that's simply not the case. And you know, you can look at the most technical companies out there and look at the marketing team and still see like a huge technical understanding gap, but that's changing. And you, you mentioned CU. I remember dealing with some interns previous in a previous role from CU where they had some emphasis uh, in, it was a business student who had an emphasis in tech. And I think that's becoming more and more. If you want to be in sales, if you want to be in marketing, business in general, you have to have a good understanding of how applications are built. Absolutely. I could not agree more. So given that, it was kind of an exciting adventure. seemed like something really interesting to go into. Are you enjoying it? And what do you enjoy the most about it? Yes, uh, I'm very much enjoying it. It feels a little bit like starting touring all over again, where you're kind of like, you know, where is up and, and you know, how do I get there? You know, but I thrive and I love those sorts of challenging situations. Um, so it's been, it's been, a, a, you know, a, a difficult thing, a challenging thing, but I, it's been highly rewarding and it's an interesting space to work in. Um, we were just chatting. I got done um, yesterday with the DevOps Enterprise Summit, which right. was, you know, really cool to just be kind of surrounded by, once again, these technologists and people super passionate and driven. Um, and then I think, you know, that conversation that we just had about, like, everybody sort of needs to have this, like, digital literacy was really prevalent there that, you know, we need, to, we as technologists need to, be, need to be able to talk business and business people need to be able to talk tech as well. Yeah, I think that's what's really going to differentiate the future 
workforce as more and more people become knowledge workers and everything is technology. I mean, everything you do. There is a strange element, though, that a lot of the tech education doesn't focus on the core of computing like it used to. Like the abstract, it's all the abstractions. Did did they do any elements of like C in Turing School? No. No. That's interesting. It's uh, there's some companies who are paying a lot of money right now to train Cobalt developers just because that kind of infrastructure exists and you can't find Cobalt developers anymore. That's so that's fascinating to me because I got a computer science degree and it was almost too much that way. I came out not a very good developer, right? but I knew a lot about architecture and like how applications worked, right? but not how to be a coder. And the business of coding is a whole new thing. Like just learning a language doesn't put you in a position necessarily to be on a development team. I mean, have you found that yourself? Yes, I agree. I think that there, it's, it's like one of two things, like the computer science degree where it's, you know, so much of the, the nuts and bolts. And then there's like, you know, these boot camps or certificate programs where it's like, okay, now we're just going to teach you this language and how to build like, you know, these applications. And there's just such a, like a disparity, I think, between the two. It's really interesting. I'm, I'm surprised that universities haven't recognized that. And just like, you know, I don't know, the last year, yeah, I totally agree. Um, I, I, I'm not bummed by my CS degree, which was at Regis University, by the way. But I, um, but I certainly, I call myself a bad coder turned advocate. I certainly wish that, part of it's aptitude though. I'm not great at details. I'm awful at details. <laughs> so, <laughs> but speaking of details, can you tell me a little bit about the DevOps stack and the technologies that, that you like to work with? Yes. So we are, I would say, based on the DevOps Enterprise Summit that I been on these last couple of days and just kind of listening to other people's story, I would say we're like relatively early in our, our DevOps journey. I work in a place called the Tap Lab. Uh, it's tools, application, and processing. And it's basically okay. this place where this sensor data of, you know, is available and we try to figure out, you know, interesting ways to utilize the data that exists. So like, you know, maybe it could be used for weather or it could be used maybe for like firefighters. And so I am sort of an employee of the TAP lab and I'm on the, um, I'm on really kind of two teams in the TAP lab, an app developer, an app delivery team, and then also the um, DevSecOps team. Oh, okay. And we have vendors come in and build applications and utilize our tools in the tap lab. And then we deploy them to an operational environment. And what's, you know, interesting is like these environments are air gap. There's no internet. So it's just kind of like an interesting, <laughs> they're just interesting novel problems. Like how, how do you fun. deploy an application without the internet? So I think it's sort of like a, a unique situation, a unique um, environment right now, you know, with the app delivery team, many of the applications aren't yet in containers. And so we're sort of building up our container knowledge and, and starting to containerize the applications that are going to eventually be deployed. And then we're looking at like, okay, um, how do we want to, like what sort of uh, 
you know, repository tool do we want to use to hold all these binaries? So we've chosen Artifactory for that. You know, eventually we're going to need some sort of like container orchestration tool. And so we're working on selecting a platform for that as well. Um, so we're sort of like, I would say early in our, in our app, in our, um, excuse me, DevOps transformation. And so it's, it's, a, it's a fun time to be part of the team as we sort of like select tools and bring them in and onboard them. Early, but still it's like your setup, as you said, is, is unique. And I think what a lot of people mistake about the term DevOps is that it's an end. Like there's a right. DevOps playbook, there really isn't. There's certainly yeah. practices like automation and so forth, but there isn't like a, you're done, you've done the DevOps. Uh, it's right. always evolving. I'm glad you said totally. the word DevSecOps because I'm going to have you define that here in a second, but I'm going to use it a chance to plug DevSecOps Days Rockies. So if you hear this before uh, <laughs> October 29th, um, Google DevSecOps Days Rockies or scan the QR code and join because we have some amazing sessions. And I was part of organizing it, and that was a freaking nightmare, or is a freaking nightmare. It's not done yet. <laughs> I'm not, I said I was bad at details, and I'm not lying. So I'm glad <laughs> I have a great group of people working with me. Yeah. So DevSecOps, what do you consider DevSecOps? I would consider DevSecOps baking in security throughout the entire development process. It's not like a handoff at some point to a security team and say, how does this look now that we're done? And then, you know, they're like, well, here's all these vulnerabilities that you haven't found. So go back, you know, into development. Um, so it's sort of like baking in that security early in the process. So it's not something like a gate that you eventually get to and have to pass or, you know, go back to go or start, whatever. You know, like all these terms, you have observability, SRE, DevSecOps, DevOps, all of them have an element of strategy. None of them are the name of a tool, but they're usually backed up by a tool. So right. like you mentioned Artifactory, there's also X-Ray for vulnerability scanning, HashiVolt for secrets management, et cetera. So it sounds like a lot of fun kind of problem solving. It almost sounds like an escape room in a way where you have to like, you have to, you know, the end, like you need to build a pipeline and it needs to be automated. And then you need to figure out all the things to put together to, to get there. How do you go through the process of deciding what tooling and what strategies and what technologies you're going to even look at? I am on the junior end of this team. You know, I'm relatively new to technology. I'm relatively new to DevOps. I'm new to the Tap Lab. You know, so I haven't had uh, the like kind of front seat view of that. But I would say we have a group of people with us, and they're really kind of like the the spearhead of the DevOps, DevSecOps um, vision. And so they, they sort of um, provide a lot of just like tool recommendations. And then we look at like, what is our infrastructure in place currently? You know, what are the vendors that are developing in our lab? What are they using? And, and then we have to sort of like, uh, you know, obviously you have to have the budget for whatever tool you're, you're choosing. And so well, maybe your spent, advertising skills come in handy there, getting on the business <laughs> side of it. Yeah, well, I think it is good to have. I'm grateful for my business background. Yeah, because you know, then I, as I continue to pro progress in my career, I think that some of those skills will 
come into handy as well. Like a team approach. Um, we just put together a working group and, and um, we've kind of like charted out what the next couple of years look like. And obviously it's iterative and, you know, things will change and we're going to be agile as we walk through those steps. But we do have sort of like a vision for where we're going and finding yeah. tools that fit. In the early days of DevOps, it was largely pegged to cloud native applications and unicorn type applications. Uh, your application sounds quote unquote on-prem. I understand that there's probably like a private cloud element to it. So you have the backing of modern infrastructure, but it's not open to the public web. Do you feel like that changes the nature of the application? Like in, in cloud native applications, building new functionality quickly that is appealing to the user matters. Does that still matter in these types of applications? Yes. And that's another, that's actually one of the fun projects that I've been working on is like, how do we get feedback on these applications, even maybe before we deploy them? Um, you know, because deploying takes, uh, at this point, you know, we don't have a connection. We don't have, you know, <laughs> the internet that we can just sort of like ship code to and it deploys to the environment. And so with all these right now manual steps in place, how do we, how do we get feedback from the users? Um, and so we've been exploring that as, you know, a challenge that we're looking at. And um, so, you know, one thing that we've done recently is we're like, okay, well, we have this sort of like lab type environment and we have these applications that, you know, we deploy. Um, maybe we can get our users like because we can't really like bring the app to them quite yet. Like let's bring the users to the app. Hmm. And so kind of like tightening that feedback between the users and the in our app development teams um, on site, on prem. What I think is important to highlight is that you still can say like this is still DevOps. I think that that was the misnomer a long time ago where if it's not fully automated and it's not cloud native, then it can't be DevOps. But you can certainly have the DevOps principles as a part of a practice of really anybody who's deploying an application to internal users, external users. I think you're dealing with a lot of interesting challenges that the, the cloud native development teams probably never will. How does it work for you in terms of collaborating with developers, IT, um, the other stakeholders in, as, that are a part of this? Like, how does that work? How do you manage that? You know, we have this lab, we have this like physical location. And um, so that that's one way that all of those teams can sort of engage with each other is on site, on prem. And again, this whole like COVID thing has been so interesting because it's a challenge when you can't have people there, right? Because it's like, that's the whole thing. It's on prem. That's literally what it is. And all the data is there. And I think that there's like a, a real like in-person piece of the whole thing. And then, you know, we've been, we've been doing the best that we can in terms of just like, uh, we engage with our vendors, also the development teams through like a, a secure development lifecycle, um, you know, so lots of documentation. We're, we're a scrum team, so we have our standups. Um, and so that's how our like internal team communicates. And then we have, we're part of uh, the safe framework. And so we mm -hmm. have PI right. planning, that's how whole organization communicates. Yeah, the SAFE framework. Why don't you give that just two seconds in case um, listeners aren't familiar with it? Yes. So it's sort of um, agile at scale and it allows 
just sort of a, a like a way for an, a larger organization than just a small team to try to um, prioritize work. It's really a, based around teams of um, agreeing to or like signing up for work rather than getting assigned work. So, um, you know, we go into what's called uh, PI, planning increment. Mm-hmm. Well, what do we take on that we feel like we can complete? And then you sort of agree to that work as a team and we do a vote, like, you know, do we all think that we can get this work done or is there some sort of, uh, you know, risk that we need to identify and address uh, in order to complete the work that we sign up for? Yeah, one of the key metrics I was talking about recently is the say-do metric. Uh, and I I really like that, um, where team members, you measure how much they say they're going to get done over a period of time in a PI, and then how much they actually do. Mm-hmm. Well, to to close it out, you know, besides what you're doing today and in, in, in your career, and, and you were just at the DevOps Enterprise Summit, which is the annual kind of like the de facto enterprise level DevOps event. And then you mentioned all day DevOps, which is an also another huge event. Yeah. What are you most excited about in the advancements in the DevOps field? I'm always really interested in the human piece of all of this stuff. You know, sitting in on some of the sessions that were part of the um, DevOps Enterprise Summit uh, that had to do with, you know, and it came up in so many conversations was this like, you know, psychological safety. Right. And ha- it was interesting, so interesting to hear how important culture is in all of this, you know, that really it's like 80% of it, you know, tools is like 10 and processes is like 10, the other 10%. Right. Um, and so I'm just like, I don't know. I think it was really a healthy thing to sit in on that conference and just hear, you know, leaders in large organizations and, just sort of like reinforce some of the things that I've learned and then refocus on, you know, why we're doing this. And it's not just about like onboarding all these tools and like, uh, you know, there's going to be a ton to learn. And, you know, we have all these vendors that we'll need to like onboard and, you know, all of the logistics of it, but instead it's like, it's really mindset and supporting one another. And like, I, I, I think, I think that that's what I'm most excited about is just this refocus on, on culture and on humans. And I, you know, I like the tools. I like the technology. That's certainly part of it, but it's also that like there's, there's humans that are using the tools and that's really what's maybe most important. And in the hardest to wrap your brain around also, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately, (laughs) but, but an effort that I think companies are naturally realizing. Uh, I talk a lot about if you were to take two, engineering teams, one high performing, one low performing, take the managers from those teams and ask them, did they hire talented engineers? Neither one of them are going to say no. I mean, if they do, then that's just a bad organization. They're both believe that they hired top engineering talent. So what makes the difference? And the difference is always in the humans. And psychological safety is not just blameless. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of elements to that. I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. Thanks for joining me. I hope you had fun. And thank you for your time. I really appreciate it.